Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. I'm Kurt Heelan, managing editor of NBC Sports NBA page with you as always. And today, time to break down what happened in Portland. It's probably the biggest surprise in the playoffs so far. Not that Portland lost, but that they got swept the way they did. It's going to lead to some soul searching. So we're bringing in Dane Carbaugh, resident of the Northeast and a guy who writes a lot about the Blazers and for us at NBC Sports to break it all down. Plus, we're going to bounce around and look at some of the other series as well. But first, just a quick reminder, go to applepodcast.com slash PBT on NBC. That's PBT as in Pro Basketball Talk on NBC. And subscribe to this podcast. Tell us what you want. Comment. We would really appreciate it. And from that, we will try to get the stuff you want to hear going forward. Let's break down the Portland Trailblazers. And here to break it down, Don, like I promised, Dane Carbaugh from NBC Sports. How's it going, Dane? Doing pretty well, Kurt. How about you? Good, good. I got to ask, since you are up in the Pacific Northwest, like, what is the mood of the fan base there? I mean, what I wouldn't. It's not just that they lost, it's that they kind of got unceremoniously swept by the pay, uh, a, a good Pelicans team. Look, they've got Anthony Davis, they've got Drew Holiday. I don't want to diminish how good the, you know, the, the Pelicans were, but losing that way that fast is, is a is a demoralizing thing for Portland, and it's leading some soul searching. But how's the fan base taking it? Yeah, I think obviously there's there's sort of there's been an up and down just since Game Three. I mean, the end end of that game was obviously I mean terrible. I mean they lost by an amount that really was a, a demoralizing amount. I think where maybe even some of the fans started to give up about whether or not it was really possible for them to to come back from that lead after losing game three um so i think you had that that, that was definitely the bottom and, and so i guess maybe maybe it depends on what do you think of uh, the difference between sadness and anger because that's definitely where it's now flipped especially post exit interviews hearing the or well really seeing some of the the team members and um really how upset they were guys like damien lillard obviously shabazz napier seemed pretty upset um you know so I think it's kind of moved on to maybe some anger, especially after hearing Neil Shea talk and sort of have him kind of go over the same thing and sort of kind of do a double speak thing where he says he's going to be measured, but there are going to be changes. We never we never said this roster was complete, but we're not going to make sweeping changes. And it's it's sort of this back and forth kind of thing. And that's kind of what I tried to encapsulate in that story on NBCSports.com about where it's, it's really more about the same question we've had about the Blazers for the last couple of years. I think fans kind of got this, uh, you know, they, they looked at it with through rose colored glasses, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but uh, with the Blazers about maybe if this team can perform sort of as a more cohesive unit, there does need to be some sort of other um, big hit or big change or, or even just a, 
a major change to the to the supporting cast. Um, you know, and you kind of forget about that during a 13-game winning streak. And then it kind of crept, crept back in over the last, I don't know, 10 days of the season when they, they weren't doing too well. And then they got swept, and now we're back to the same spot. And so I think fans are they sort of turned back to that, that sort of anger about uh, what is this team doing? They're hamstrung by their uh, free agent choices and so on and so forth. Yeah, I would imagine. That, look, they should they should be frustrated. They are understandably frustrated and and a little angry at where things are at. Uh, the bottom line is that the core of this thing isn't changing, right? I mean, bottom line, C.J. McCollum's not going anywhere. Obviously, Lillard wouldn't go anywhere. Uh, that part of it's not changing. They're not switching out the young guns. Right. No, I I don't think that's the case. I think there are two kind of things going on there. One is that. Uh, the most important one, the one that I didn't put in my story, just because I, I didn't think it necessarily needed to be explicitly said, is when it comes down to trading stars in the NBA, take a look at the Paul George trade, yeah. right? You have Oladipo uh, you know, heading to Indiana as a former number two overall pick and a guy who sort of floundered a little bit in his first two spots, although he was a little more useful uh, in that year with Russell Westbrook just as a a shooter or a receiver of all those open looks as he drew in that gravity, but he wasn't going to be the most improved player in Indiana. Nobody thought that was going yep. to happen. That felt like a lopsided trade at the time. And then, of course, what you have is something that really before Paul George sort of found his footing, people were saying the trade was going the opposite way the first two months of the season. And so, but really what, what, what it comes down to is when you trade a star, more often than not, you are getting back draft picks and young, talented pieces. And the Blazers aren't in a point where they want to do that. That's actually taking a step back from where they feel like they probably are internally if they traded one of those players, probably CJ. Uh, you know, you're not getting back the wing you need that completes the whole piece or whatever. I mean, it, it's possible that everything's possible in the NBA. It's so wacky and wild. But it's more than likely that you'd be taking a chance on developing other players. And, of course, what do the Blazers already have? A bunch of other wing talent and forward talent that they're trying to develop into starting caliber players, Zach Collins, Mo Harkless, so on and so forth. So you don't really want to do that in general. And then the second thing is that C.J. McCollum is the guy that Neil O'Shea is attached to just from a perspective of he wants this uh, pairing to sort of work as a matter of pride. As a you know, C.J. was the guy that Neil drafted himself, that he scouted himself, that that was his pick. Lillard was had already been scouted by the team. You know, O'Shea didn't come. Uh, to, to the Trailblazers until about uh, you know a little less than a month before Lillard got taken in the 2012 NBA draft. So you have this guy in McCollum who's you know sort of uh, Olshay's pride and pride and joy, and he's not gonna no he's not gonna uh, hamper the team uh, if if a, if a major trade that really made sense for the team came along. Of course, Neil Olshay would pull the trigger. He's not crazy, and he's a smart guy. But as a matter of pride, I think they you know this is an interesting sort of roster theory. Can you make it work with these two guys? And of course, they did get better at defense together over this year, and that kind of compounds things because they were better on defense this year. Yeah. They were a good, Blazers were a good defensive team. So, for O'Shea, I'm sure it's more of a thing where I'm not getting these trades, I don't want to take a step back, I think the, the process is actually working, and it's more about filling out the the rest of the roster. I'm sure this is, I'm th- just supposing this is how he's thinking. But uh, he probably thinks it's more about filling out the rest of the roster in terms of he's looking at it when Ed Davis and Zach Collins and Mo Harkos are all firing and Aminu is hitting from three. This team is pretty good, and they were. That's that, that's those were all the four factors that sort of plugged into that 13-game winning streak. So 
I think I think that's kind of where they're at. And you kind of touched on a lot of it. Like they're going to have to make some decisions this summer, uh, starting with you know what to do with Yusuf Nurkic. But they have some pieces there that kind of do work as part of the core in terms of look. Al Camino does provide some quality defense on the wing and make some you know was knocking down threes. He wasn't consistent all year long, but he was making down, making shots. Mo Harkless is the guy I thought they really missed in the postseason. Like, that's the guy who really kind of glued them together and just, you know, because of injuries, wasn't wasn't really there for them in the postseason the way they needed. Um, but I don't know if still that would have been enough uh, because at the end of the day, the, the, at the end of the day, Anthony Davis was the best player on the floor by a mile um, and he got a little more help with Drew Holiday and Miritich and what have you. But it becomes almost this, like, Toronto thing with, with Portland, doesn't it? Like, can you really win with these guards? Can you really adjust the style internally to make this work? It's an interesting question, but I'm not sure that, that, yeah, they did it in Toronto. Well, we'll see if they did it in Toronto. (laughs) Um, It it certainly was up for debate after the way they played last game, but, you know, during the regular season, they were able to, but I don't know if that culture kind of shift is going to happen here. Yeah, I, I would guess that it doesn't just because of the way that I think you also have to look at it from a, uh, a simple perspective of you have Damian Lillard who's 27 years old. CJ is also 26 and he had that, he already had that conversation about this urgency in Portland with owner Paul Allen. And that's more about Olshay's roster construction than it is about Terry Stotts. And then you think about the context of the Portland trailblazers sort of post Damon Stoudemire. This is a team that was looking for a point guard, as their fran- sort of as a franchise piece, for years and years and years. You had Steve Blake multiple times. You had Raymond Felton. You had Bassett Telfair. You had uh, you know, 40-year-old Andre Miller. You had all these guys. And they finally found it in Damian. He's the franchise guy. He's at a, a, a spot that they've sort of been, you know, a lot of times what they needed was a point guard, and they kind of had everything else filled out. So now Portland has this sort of pre-internal um, like, need to have this point guard position filled, and now they have one slash two of them. So I don't think they want to necessarily so, – so there's some historical context there. So I don't think they want to go away from that. And, yeah, it's, it, it, I think I would agree that in general it is more about um, the, how the roster fills out. I mean, Mo Harkless not being mopey and being a guy who yeah. not only hit not only hit threes from the corner but is a better dribbler than Aminu, you know, uh, is able to create gravity with – both with his shooting and with his dribbling, that then opens up passing lanes. So he's not just a pure scorer for the team when Damian and CJ are kicking. He's also a guy that's then sending defenses into the corner to get him. You rotate a ball around, you have an open bucket in the middle for you know a, a cutter down low, an easy layup. It's it's a lot of different things that happen with having that guy there. So I think I think they definitely think that it's more about that. And I sort of tend to agree with them, even if I'm sort of wavering on the overall idea of the the roster theory being constructed around those two guards. Can, can we just safely say now, like Terry Stotts isn't going anywhere. Like nobody, they're not firing Terry Stotts. I, 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 I mean, I suppose it's possible in the somebody leans on Olshay and Olshay's not going to fire himself, so somebody's got to be the scapegoat kind of way. But I, it just seems unlikely once things have settled down that they're going to look back and think, yeah, the problem with Terry Stotts. I mean, he can be a little bit rigid, but I don't think that was the problem. No, no, I think uh, the, the Terry Stotts question obviously leap, sort of leapfrogs Neil O'Shea and goes back to Paul Allen, who's such a hard character to read, plays everything yeah. close to the chest. He doesn't have his business out there. And the thing with Paul Allen is he has made sort of this 
shift in his ownership technique over the years. If you remember at the turn of the last century, you know, he was really a guy who, I mean, he was, you know, Portland was always, you know, top five in salary every single year just to like, hey, let's pay, you know, Rashid all this money and Scotty all this money and, and all these things to be able to, yeah. let, let, I don't care what the luxury tax, you know, who cares? I'm a billionaire. I just want to, you know, get to the, get to the finals. And so he's really sort of changed how I think reactive he is a little bit. And, and that is seen in he's letting Neil do his plan, even if parts of his plan has sort of backfired, the Turner signing and, and some of the other guys that he picked up. Um, but I think he's, and, and that sort of trickles down, right? I don't think that, I don't think realistically there would be a way for Olshay to, because it would be Olshay convincing Paul Allen to get rid of Terry Stotts. There's no way that, that uh, Neil Olshay could do that sort of of his own volition. And I don't think there's a way to do that because I think that Paul Allen has um, sort of fundamentally changed his strategy in managing the team, and he thinks that Terry is a good coach. I mean, the players love him. Damian Lillard, the franchise, you know, Cornerstone loves him, and he's done a really good job, not just this year with other pieces with development of guys like Harkless and making Nurkic far more aggressive um, and sort of how he's changed his lineups a little bit and um, how he uses guys like Evan Turner either as a starter or a bench player. But it's it's – Players before, I mean, it's it's little things you see as far back as Damian's rookie year or uh, how he sort of transformed the offense to be something that revolved around Mason Plumley as a high-post passer a couple of years ago. I mean, Terry Stotts is, is a good coach, um, better than the Blazers I think have had in a little while, and uh, there's no reason to move away from him. Yeah, the thing that ties up the idea of making moves this summer, there's a couple of decisions they've got to make, but... You look, you start looking down the roster, and it's the two big contracts they'd like to move that they're not going to be able to probably, which is or without throwing some assets around. Evan Turner at seventeen point eight next year, and then a guarant- fully guaranteed eighteen point six in nineteen twenty. Let's talk about that one first. But the other one is Myers Leonard at ten point five, and then eleven point two. That they're again, these are fully guaranteed deals that really tie up their ability to bring in good quality rotation players around them because they're pretty much capped out. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, so, uh, Casey Holdall at com and Joe Freeman do an excellent podcast. That's a, it's a Blazers only podcast. And they were talking about this in their, their sort of recap of the year, the last one of the year about how, even if you just sort of jettison one of those guys from the, from the team, they still be over the cap. Yeah. <laughs> like they, like that, that's the problem Portland finds themselves in. Even if you just, you know, if this was the NFL and you could just cut your fourth best player at random for money purposes, which is not doesn't happen, obviously it's not possible with the NBA CBA. It, they would they would still be sort of in a tight spot. But if you look at the problem with Turner, is that he has I think he's done credit where credit is due. He's done an excellent job when he's been healthy of adapting his game to be able to fit the spots that the Blazers need him to fit. He's still not a very good three point shooter. I think he shot. 32 or 34 percent something like that from three and of course he's not a volume shooter so that you know doesn't really help that much um and that was a a severe that's really impacted the team when harkless wasn't like he was like literally glued to the bench uh that that really hurt that team at that time uh this regular season but you know he tries to pick his spots he tries to be able he, he knows how to move through the offense he knows who's looking for what you know but turner is not a guy who uh even as a third ball handler he's not a dribbler he doesn't uh yeah. he doesn't attack the basket hard enough he doesn't draw fouls he doesn't do sort of these high gravity things that make defenses suck down he's not brandon roy 
he may be slow, but he's not Brandon Roy. You know, he's not that type of guy. So it's it's really a, a real problem of where does he fit in a traditional NBA offense? I don't know. And at that number, I mean, yeah. I don't know what Portland. I, I don't know if it's possible for Portland to move him, even if they did want to part ways with their first round pick and some other kind of significant asset. I don't know if it's possible because I think there's a real question about whether or not he fits in the modern NBA. Yeah, and they've paid him a lot of money to essentially, I mean, it was that year after they got beat in the playoffs because Lillard and McCollum were getting trapped and they just, there wasn't a third playmaker. There wasn't somebody else who could they could get the ball to in a, to use the easy example, a Draymond Green kind of way where, you know, Draymond's a really good playmaker. So when you trap Curry or Thompson or take the ball, or we're taking the ball out of Curry's hands, well, he rolls it to Thompson. Thompson gets to that short roll at the middle and all sorts of things open up. They were hoping he would be, a, he's a different player, obviously, than Draymond, but a playmaker of that ilk for them. And it has, you know, health has been part of it, but he hasn't been close to being that guy. And without that guy, they're just not. They, they just don't have the the depth of playmaking that they need to make this work beyond this season. And Myers Leonard, I don't even know where you play him. I mean, we'll see what they're going to do with Nurkic. But Zach Collins. Zach Collins looks good, man. Zach Collins yeah. looks like a guy who's going to develop into the future starter at least quality rotation big man that they they wanted. I mean, he, sure. he was so raw. Remember, for people who don't remember this, he was out of Gonzaga. He didn't start for Gonzaga. Like, <laughs> he, he was coming off the bench at Gonzaga before he got drafted. This was all about potential. He had a better than, I think, expected rookie year. I He, he was one of those guys on my list when I was doing the uh, all-rookie teams where you're like, you know, nine, you know, eight years out of ten, he makes the all-rookie team. Like, he was good. This was a abnormally good year for rookies um, from the top on down. But just like the depth of the OG Ananobis and Bam Abadayos and, and, and quality guys up and down the roster. And, and Zach didn't quite make the cut. But that guy's going to be good for Portland for a long time. And the hell does, where the hell does Myers Leonard fit in all that? Yeah, it's, it's a real shock. I mean, you and I were sitting next to each other watching the Blazers at Summer League yep. this year in Vegas, and the whole all the talk in Portland was about the guy who almost didn't see the floor this year, Caleb Swanigan, who ended up going yeah. down to the G League. Um, that was going to be the guy who's going to, oh, he might be a, you know, a sleeper starter for the Blazers this year. Nope, it ended up being Zach Collins, and you know, he was really impressed, especially in terms of his, um, his natural defensive ability. I think in terms of where he just feels where he is in the court, he gets turned around sometimes when there's some more veteran plays and he plays much better next to Ed Davis. Uh, who sort of takes up some of his slack as you would expect, but that's what a rookie big man is. I mean, if you're not a starter, that's really good for a rookie big man, especially for a, a team in Portland who <laughs> let's be honest, needs some cheap talent down low. Let's, yep. let's, let's, that, that's a really good sort of alt, uh, alternative thing for them there. But when it comes to Myers, you know, the problem with Myers a couple years ago was that, he uh, had that shoulder injury, and then he told uh, – actually, he first told uh, myself and uh, Eric Gunderson, the former beat reporter for the, uh, the Vancouver Columbian, uh, on a podcast we were doing, that he actually didn't feel uh, fully healthy until January or February of 2017, even after coming back. So his, his shoulder was still sort of really hampering him. And that, that affects you, especially for a guy like Myers, who um, is not – you can tell when he's playing, especially offensively, he, he's people sort of, you know, especially Blazers fans, really sort of get on him for, uh, you know, uh, bad turnovers and that sort of thing. But 
really what ends up happening, a lot of his turnovers because somebody just sort of flips in the ball with six seconds to go on a, on a bad offensive set. It's like, well, what else is, you know, what is he supposed to do? He's, you know, he's the fourth or fifth best player on the, on the floor when you have a full bench lineup in. I'm not really sure what he's supposed to do. His real issue is still on the defensive side of the ball and rotationally. And you can see him. He's, the guy works really hard. And he goes through a lot of this stuff with his coaching. But he's not a natural post player, I don't think. Mostly because of he, he's one of those guys like Anthony Davis where he, uh, he was a point guard when he was like a, a freshman or a sophomore or something. Then he had this insane you know, seven-inch growth spurt or whatever between sophomore and junior yeah. year. Then all of a sudden he was playing the big man. When you're six eight in high school, it doesn't doesn't you don't have to be skilled. You're just going to score every time essentially. And mm-hmm. then he plays two years at Illinois, uh, doesn't really develop and doesn't even play the same game at Illinois. He plays at the Blazers. He hasn't had a lot of development to sort of be a big man, and he doesn't have a lot of those skills. So you can see him working through, and it's you know it's a quarter step or a half step slow sometimes. You can see his brain making the right read on. You know, second passes and third passes on when he's on defense, but he's just he doesn't have that sort of feel for the game. He can't reach out with the force a little bit and just sort of feel it without thinking through it, and that puts him a little bit behind. Because if you're a half step or a quarter step step slow in this league, plus you're trying to be a rotational big in the NBA, you're going to get dunked on or be out of position for a rebound or have to commit bad fouls to stop shots going up. And so I, I don't know when that can come up, but that's that's really the big issue with having Myers at $10 million for the Blazers as they try to either sell him as a, uh, a trade prospect or use him for themselves. It's not necessarily offensive. It's it's more defensive and, and the other intangibles that he brings to the floor. He's just a, still just like a half step slow. And that leads to the other big man question that they've got to deal with this summer, which is Yusuf Nurkic is a restricted free agent. Um, the thing is, I think... This is the good year for that to happen if you're the Blazers because you probably are going to be able to keep him on the cheap. And you got into this a little bit in the story, but look, it is a really tight market this summer. There's not a lot of teams with money. There's look, there are some big name free agents. We'll you know we'll see what happens with Demarcus Cousins and Paul George and you know whatever. But by and large, you're going to be able to steal guys with like you're going to get much better value for your mid level exception than you did before. And Nurkic is one of those guys where. In the right year, somebody may have rolled the dice and said, hey, look, he's played pretty well for them. We can throw a lot of money at him and make this happen. This year, that's not going to happen. Like This year, he's not going to find a lot of money on the market. He may ask for a shorter-term deal to try to get paid in a couple of years, but you can get him for two or three years at a more reasonable rate um, and bring him back. And I imagine that that's what they'll do uh, just because they don't have other options. I mean, they've got Zach Collins coming up, but... I mean, what are you going to do? Let Nurkic walk and just re-sign Ed Davis? Yeah, here's here's the uh, the the morbid Portlander in me. Is um, this is the the bet? The here's here's the the one silver lining possibly from other than maybe lighting a little bit more of a fire under uh, Olshay's butt to, to get things going is you know Nurkic at this time last year was going to be a very expensive player to pay. Yeah. Now you have a guy who. I mean, got absolutely worked, looked out of place in that playoff series, didn't have a good end to the regular season either. He essentially had this rise through the season where he was he had been on a, a very slow decline in terms of losing himself a little bit of money over time. Then he was sort of he peaked back up with the rest of the team, and then he really crashed at the end of the year. So just in terms of other teams assessing his value, you have that going on where they think that he might be a little bit too inconsistent, which he is a little bit. 
to, to pay that money for themselves. Then you also have the idea of the rest of the NBA. It's not like other other years and before where I mean, the the example I always like to use is the Blazers um, giving these giant uh, RFA contracts to sort of screw their their uh, well mostly the Jazz. Let's be honest, yeah. Paul Millsap, Enos Cantor, uh, Wesley Matthews, who they actually got actually, but. You, know, you can't use people aren't going to be using their cap space as a weapon against other teams because the way it works with the restrict for agency is you have to have that cap space available and it stops you from essentially puts a hold on that amount of money in your available cap so you can't sign anybody you actually want in the meantime player they don't have, nobody has that sort of weapon to get to be able to use against the blazers so mm-hmm. that puts you in a position to be able to get Nurkic at a discount if like although maybe like you said um maybe a shorter term deal to be able to get him to get back in the market earlier than that. The the thing that's actually the most interesting twist of the whole thing is I've heard it been floated that he might actually decide to sign his qualifying offer, Ooh. which is how you get into restricted free agency. Uh, but it's a qualifying, a qualifying offer for those who don't know is something that's, uh, it's a small, small, much smaller amount of money. It's, I think it's based off of your, what your draft position or something like that. Right. Right. It um, is. He would, his qualifying offer for the record next year is 4.1. And right. and we're talking about getting him at a discount, but a discount for Nurkic is still going to be eight to ten right. somewhere in that range. Right. So if if he signs a qualifying offer, that puts him essentially he gets to sign that. And uh, who was this? Was it did Drummond do this a couple of years? No, ago? No, it was quali- uh, it was uh, Greg Monroe, wasn't it? Greg Monroe signed his qualifying offer and then went to the free free market to be able to get made him a, an unrestricted free agent the next year. I've heard it been floated that he might actually do that instead, which would. I mean, the Blazers still be over the cap, so it doesn't save it saves them money sort of on paper, saves Paul Allen some money out of his pocket, but it might not necessarily help the Blazers, you know, next five year uh, cap space plan as much as getting him on a, a three year uh, thirty six million dollar deal or something something like that, which is entirely possible. Yeah, I think that's gonna be interesting. Do they bring back Ed Davis? I mean, Ed Davis was rock solid once again. That guy is solid everywhere, every place he goes. Like and there's I don't know how much money he's going to make, but there's got to be teams looking for a discount out there who who could use a big man up front who can like, man, we could bring Ed Davis off the bench and get 15 to 20 solid minutes a night. Right. Yeah, I think, the, you know, if you don't anything about poker, they say that uh, being pot committed is, um, or you know, smart poker players don't actually believe in being pot committed. But let's be honest, the Blazers are pot committed right now. They have, yeah. there's, they have all the money out and more that they possibly have. And if they're really going to make that push with, that whole urgency conversation that Damian Lillard was talking about, uh, the the big man rotation doesn't work with just Collins. He is not ready to be that guy next year. And Ed Davis made helped make that team. You know, he, he had a shoulder injury the year before that didn't allow him to really be the player that they really needed him to be. And then when he came back healthy this year, it's it made the Blazers a good defensive team. I mean, the Blazers rested on their defensive laurels, laurels this year. They went from eighth to 16th and three-point shooting percentage they went from top 10 to i think 19th and three-pointers attempt like they went down people think that you know cj and dame are firing up all these threes and that's how they're winning games uh-uh the blazers need a defense and a big part of that is obviously aminu harkless the big change in damon and cj but ed davis and i think they're at that point where look if he's going to cost them anywhere from seven to ten million dollars a year six to ten million dollars a year or if he takes a discount and takes their their mid level exception, that's great. They're they're just gonna they're just gonna do it. You know what? Like they'll they'll pay the pay, pay the penalty. And I think the real question for Olshay and Allen is I think Olshay might need to sort of 
they, they made the move to get rid of uh, Noah Vonley earlier this year yeah. to sort of get out of that uh, area, but they're going to have to tempt the repeater tax here because that's the only way to get this team to move forward, I think, because they're they're well, they're stuck with that Turner contract. Yeah, exactly, and they're not going to be able to move that or, or Leonard that he's simply, and that and that kind of leads to it. I mean, look, Olshay's a Wheeler dealer by nature. He wants to make deals, and and Paul Allen, frankly, loves that. Like Paul Allen is not the the. I don't want to say he's not steady, but not he's not Peter Holt or something where you know they're, they're thinking the long. He's kind of aggressive out there. I expect them to make moves this summer. I just you look at it, what they've got and what they want to do, and it's hard to see what moves they make that dramatically. Like you're like, oh, they could go do this and go get a go get a three, go get a whatever. It's just not going to be that simple for them to make the kind of moves they make, and sometimes that leads to. It, that can lead to poor decisions as, as you're trying to make moves for the sake of making moves. Right. Well, and that's that's really where we get into the whole conversation about Olshay and yeah. what he's selling at exit interviews or other interviews because he gives so few of them versus what the actors of the team are, right? He likes to talk about being measured. And but what you brought it up earlier, uh, we were talking is the idea that the Blazers needed to have a third ball handler, especially in so an expensive one that can't shoot or doesn't draw free throws as a dribbler like Evan Turner only because teams started to trap the Blazers during the, the playoffs two year, two or three years ago. I mean, that's not measured. That's not, that's not calm and steady. That's reactionary. And it's the same thing. I mean, you know, O'Shea on you know, the first half of his uh, talk and actually interviews this year was talking about how, you know, nobody said the roster was done, but we're going to make some changes and not going to be big sweeping ones. We're still going to, work to where we're going. But then he also said that they need to make some changes to be able to counter some of the positionless basketball that's happening in the NBA, like they faced against, you know, uh, the Pelicans this year. Well, that sounds to me like he's making a choice based off of a one playoff series where he got actually hammered, even despite winning 49 games and being the third seed in the West and all that kind of stuff. So I think that, um, for as much as he likes to talk about not sort of, uh, you know, sort of slow playing everything. I think we do see a big change um, this year for the Blazers. I don't know what it is because they're still hampered. I mean, big might be relative to what what's possible, what you might think is possible for their roster, right? Yeah. But I think I think we see something significant. Exactly. I I wanted to ask you is uh, we I don't know if there was anything we want else we wanted to cover with Portland because I'm not sure. You know, like. I don't think Olshay's going anywhere, and I think that that's a frustration for Blazers fans. But at the end of the day, right now, there's not a GM change. If there's not a GM change, I don't know what ultimately changes about the path, right? Mm-hmm. So, Correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that's where we're at with, with Portland. They you know, Olshay just signed a, an extension a couple of years ago that it makes them sort of financially annoying to to get rid of. I don't see him as going anywhere. Uh, Stotts also signed a smaller extension, but um, you know he hasn't. Yeah, he's had some tricks up his sleeve, you know. Uh, yeah. Robin Lopez for Jet Withy and, uh, you know, Plumlee for Nurkic and um, that kind of stuff is, has been good, smart. He's had some smart draft choices, even though he could have taken uh, Mitchell or some other folks. Zach Collins and Kel Swanigan look like good developmental bigs. But there's also big hit, things that have not worked for him. Evan Turner was a big issue. You know, he re-signed Alan Crabb on that um, yep. that RFA deal, essentially hoping that he could then offer him off to the highest bidder. That didn't happen. He just traded him back to the Nets the first day he could after yep. afterward. Uh, 
you know, it's, it's, it's been a real mixed bag, but I don't think he's going anywhere. And so I think what's going to happen with Portland is they are going to have to sort of bite the bullet, go deeper into the luxury tax, re-sign the players they need to have, and look for a value and, and try, try to get anything they have. I mean, they, they do have a trade exception from the Allen Crabb trade. Uh, it's like seven or eight million dollars, but um, you know I think it's gonna it's gonna take a, a pretty big. Um, you know, well, the way trades work in the NBA too are so up to what another you know there's 29 other teams in you, and what's happening with them. Yeah. You know it might not seem on paper three months ago that this would have happened, but then some internal thing changed or the the coach changed or whatever it was, and then suddenly something becomes available. So that's why I wouldn't rule it out. But yeah. I don't. I think the the main pillars, both in the front office and on the roster, aren't really going anywhere, and they're just going to have to dig deeper. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not sure. Look, I'm, I'm curious. We'll be curious to see Paul Allen. Look, the question isn't does Paul Allen have the money, but how deep does he want to go into the tax, and how much does he want to repeat for a roster in a conference where there is Golden State and there is Houston, and the short term is it's going to be really hard to get past those teams for a couple of years. So, uh, they're they're not the only team out there but you, you some of the teams on the there are teams on the rise thinking man you know I want to be good a couple years from now not necessarily like on the fastest curve ever just because it's really top heavy in the west right now so, right um, yeah and I, I the, the question I've heard that too especially about Portland about you want to be the team that's ready when those teams are sort of petering out but the problem with that I think is the timeline is yeah. sort of the age of this roster and the yep. time at which their contracts already got signed I mean, exactly. Damian and CJ are both on hundred plus million dollar contracts already. Yep, and and look, they're they're entering their prime right now. Like this is mm-hmm. the time you want to strike. If you're if you're I don't know Minnesota, you can have this conversation now. Granted, yes. they, <clears throat> granted, they got Jimmy Butler and what have you, but Carl Anthony Towns and Wiggins are on a different timeline. You know, so mm-hmm. um, it's a different curve than than it is in Portland right now. The other thing I really wanted to ask you, I want to start bouncing around some of the other series real quick. You obviously watching this series got a good look at New Orleans now. How big a threat do you see them as to to uh, Golden State? I think the the big problem is well, obviously with Golden State, the conversation sort of starts and ends with when is Steph Curry coming yeah, back? Because we exactly. all we all have seen the on off numbers about him being on the floor, off the floor, games away with and without him. Heck, games with him and not without Kevin Durant. Uh, we 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 all know the numbers on that. So I think that's that's the number one thing for them. Second, you know, and Golden State's not necessarily didn't they didn't there are times in those Spurs games quarters really where they it didn't look unstoppable and who's who's firing on all cylinders on on the Spurs I mean you have faith in Lamarcus Aldridge over there I mean yeah of yeah. course obviously they're closing them out but you know it's it's not the uh, it's not the, the seventy three win season anymore they don't feel unstoppable so I think that's that's a factor for the Warriors in terms of the Pelicans. Yeah, I mean, they looked great. But I, after having watched all of the Blazers' regular season and seeing that 13-game win streak and sort of going through that, you do kind of get the sense that, wow, uh, it's possible that... I mean, Davis has been on another planet since, like, Valentine's Day or something, yeah. right? He, just, like, he won two straight uh, Player of the Months to, to finish the season. So I, I don't necessarily see a Peter off for him. The question for him, obviously, is... Um, especially since January 1st, it feels like every other game he's, ah, grabbing his ankle, ah, 
I mean, it's, yeah. it's going back, and then, and then he comes back out, and then he scores 30 more points, right? <laughs> so it's for him, it's always about, is he going to turn an ankle or tweak a knee or some weird where he's just not on the floor? Uh, Holiday being at that other level, it, him and Mir- I mean, Miritich had a, uh, not only a uh, playoff career high, but a career high in points, I think in game two or three against the Blazers. Yep. Can you really rely on all, I mean, Rondo is playoff Rondo. Do you think that's really going to continue and continue all at the same time? Because I think that all of those things need to hit at the same time for the Pelicans to be able to beat the Warriors. I don't think it's necessarily impossible just because, you know, the the playoffs are relatively truncated. I mean, they, they play that game on Saturday, right? I mean, Yeah, it's, game one is Saturday it's, night. It's, it's going to be quick here. I mean, that's, that's only a week off for the Pelicans to be able to so they have more time to scout and uh, and do all this other stuff because they finished the, the Portland series at you know four four o'clock on Saturday this last Saturday. So, um, but it's not like those guys are suddenly going to become complete garbage and Holiday is going to shoot sixteen percent from three after a week. I think I think there's have to be some you think there'd be some necessary carryover from those things. So the question I think for the Pelicans is whether or not they really um, can sort of continue those things all together because they did struggle yeah. with the. Um, with the Warriors, I think they were they were one and three against them. And the one game they won, they didn't they didn't have Anthony or they didn't have uh, Demarcus Cousins in the one game they did win against them. But uh, you know, it's, it's not like the, the series record between them is in their favor. Yeah, the, the, those regular season matchups are kind of useless. I went back and looked at them a little bit today, but they're uh-huh. they're almost useless. It's because outside the first game, way back at the start of the season, neither team was fully functional. For, for sure. these games, so it's like... Eh. And no Miritich, I'm sure, for, yeah, exactly. for a couple of them. And so, um, moving on from that, I think it's interesting, look, Drew Holiday, who I love is in, and love to watch play, has been, you know, Anthony, uh, not Anthony, uh, Alvin Gentry's been calling him, you know, the best, the third best two-way player in the league behind LeBron and Kyrie Irving, or not Kyrie, uh, Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi. Whatever. You're right. <laughs> Um, Kyrie, not the best two-way player in the league. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, behind Kawhi and LeBron. And I'm like, yeah, guess who he's going up against? Another guy I would throw on that list of underrated. He's going to be matched up on Clay Thompson. And Clay makes life difficult for people. Like, Clay is really good on both ends, too. I think it's going to be... I, I don't think he's... I think that that plays out interestingly, but I think it makes life much more difficult for Drew Holiday. And for... Look, Davis is, like you said, on another planet. He's going to get his but. The Warriors can throw a steady stream of good defensive bodies at you. They can throw Draymond Green, and then they're going to throw uh, Kevin Durant and his length. And then they, they've got Kevon Looney, who, for all his flaws, that guy's kind of long and athletic and can give you know give them a few minutes there. They, they've got bodies to throw at Davis just to wear him down a little bit. And I think that that ultimately gets them... It, it's just the depth and, and versatility of the Warriors is is what makes them so good. It's the... It's the contrast to Oklahoma City, who has yet to figure out how to win other than the one way they know how to win, and it's coming back to bite them in the playoffs. The Warriors can beat you any variety of ways and throw a lot of different things at you, and that's what makes them always so dangerous. Yeah, who's uh, how, how ready are you, how excited are you for the big Anthony Davis, JaVale McGee post-up <laughs> possessions? Both ja- ways. Both yeah, exactly. Ways Honestly, and JaVale is... For all his, you know, um, well, you know, we'll call him the shack and a fool moments and what have you. Yeah. Like, JaVale is freakishly athletic. Like, mm-hmm. Just out of the Still. building, to this day, out of the building athletic. 
And that can be an advantage in those kind of moments. Again, another body you can just throw at Davis, who's long and physical, and you're not going to host him up, and he's not going to be able to chase him around completely on the perimeter, but he'll get out there a little bit. He'll do Uh something. Like, it's... It's just that that's where that Warriors roster and that depth of guys who fit what they want to do and that versatility come into play. I, I you know, I right. still I think it's the, probably the Warriors in five. I think Miritich. I, th- I think they have to work for it though, and they kind of had to work for it against the Spurs. But you you also hit on the real key, which is you know, when does Curry get back? And right. and, and with that, by the way, which Curry? Like like how much Curry uh-huh. do we get? You know, at what point? And and. As again, as Alvin Gentry noted, everybody's like, "Oh, he's going to be rusty." Yeah, last time he came back from a knee injury in the in the playoffs, he dropped thirty nine in the first game. Like, he, right. we'll see how much rust settles on him. But but the, also, also last time he came back from knee injury in the playoffs, they lost the finals. Yes, they did. And by and and, <laughs> and and with everything on the line at the end of the finals, could he shake Kevin Love on the perimeter and get the shot he wanted? Right. Nope. Nope. Exactly. That that knee that knee didn't bother him completely, but it was he didn't fully trust it. You know, he wasn't fully into it at that point, and uh, so it wasn't quite the same. Um, we'll see where he's at because look, they can get by the Pelicans without him, but Houston, assuming that the Houston we saw that Houston has woken up, assuming that that uh, that they went, oh yeah, yeah, we're we're back now. Um, Yeah, those Rockets are are going to be dangerous, and by. one other thing I think we just have to talk Gob, about briefly uh, because we're required by law is this is an NBA podcast. Uh, we, we are required now to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers for a couple minutes uh, <laughs> just just because they are they are the every I they really actually I, I didn't want to say this for a long time because I don't believe in young teams kind of making these kind of leaps. But you keep looking around the East and you look into the the f- multitude of flaws on Cleveland and you look at the, the, tr- the team I was buying into and wanted to believe in, in Toronto. And i see them, you know, not getting, not playing great defense the last game. And then when getting frustrated on offense and reverting back to, you know, 38 shooting possessions for DeMar DeRozan and, and then right. getting away from the ball movement. And you're like, maybe, maybe right. I, mean, I just, I can't throw out the possibility now that, that, that they could get out of the East. Yeah, the real mistake for all of us was uh, finally trusting the Raptors in, in any yes. way, shape, or form. It's a, I mean, we had plenty of evidence throughout the regular season and the fact that you can just use the eyeball test to look at how their offense runs and how that has changed a little bit and the fact that their bench has been very good and they sort of sort of had that same <laughs> – they, they do have a lot of comparisons to the Blazers here. They had a sort of uh, you know a, a rising tide floats all boats kind of thing you know, all these guys in the Raptors were playing very well. JV was playing, you know, more consistently. That kind of made everybody else better. Um, and now they're, yeah, like you said, especially when they're in tough spots, they don't look that good. In contrast, you had the Sixers, who, who's the leading scorer for the Sixers in the playoffs? J.J. Redick. Yep. Coming off a million screens, doing all these things, and handling the ball a little bit. If you if you watch, if you actually watch those games, he's like dribbling around picks and stuff. It's like, he, you know, he's like 33 years old. It's It's great. But they're they're playing as a as a team. Obviously, Simmons is dishing out assists. Bellinelli's taking a million off kilter three pointers. Um, they do look more complete. And the thing that you know, the thing that really impressed me about that Heat series is uh, if you watched the majority of those games, you saw one to one and a half or two sort of tussles, scuffles, fights, 
big emotional moments, guys squaring off chest in every single game, whether it was against Drogic or uh, Kelly Olenek was squaring up, James Johnson squaring up. Everybody was going after each other in that series. And for a young team to respond emotionally to those games and yeah. be able to sort of bottle it up, make an even keel, and then plunge forward and dispatch their you know, <laughs> arrival from the Eastern Conference who was, uh, was not giving them an inch, that really shows me that maybe it's not just about sort of overing, overpowering other teams and having more talent and having that talent sort of flow you through. And so you might have more confidence with them when things get tougher in later rounds. Yeah, uh, they do have to go up against teams with more talent than Miami, obviously, going forward. And frankly, <laughs> frankly, that starts with the next round, assuming it's Boston, which, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, look, I still think that's a seven-game series. So we'll, we'll see. You know, Milwaukee will go home and actually play defense again and get some transition points. But mm-hmm. um, play off into the second half. Yeah, we'll see, but probably. <laughs> but but assuming it's Boston, look, Al Horford's good. Jalen mm-hmm. Brown's hitting. Uh, J- Jalen Brown has been kind of one of those guys who just makes tough shots. Like, mm-hmm. they, they're not great. Some looks sometimes. Your he keeps knocking them down. Um, they're going to make you work for it. But I, I still, boy, I keep looking at them. The the way the Sixers are playing right now and the way they're coming together and thinking this. This could work for them. We'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I, I'm fearful of doing that with young teams, but and right. I think if they got through honestly to the finals, they would get smoked by Golden right. State or Houston. But it would be sort of like, I don't know, Dwight Howard's Orlando team that made it to the finals that one year. But it's not out of the question. I, I think it's interesting because, you know, my season preview for the Celtics at uh, Pro Basketball Talk was about this team is going to go as far as their sort of young rotational players, Marcus Smart sort of being the oldest and most experienced one, all the way down to their you know, star rookies, um, you know, Jason Tatum, it's, it's going to be about how much those guys can sort of uh, contribute because, you know, at the time it was Gordon Hayward kind of, kind of can't, and Al Horford can't do it all. Now those guys aren't even on the floor. Except for, I mean, Al Horford's playing very well. Um, but you have, yeah, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart just came back and essentially – um, yeah, you know he made he made he made the <laughs> other than the uh, missed um, twenty four shot clock violation he made the play of the game with about thirty seconds left last night where he you know uh, almost had the ball stole away from him on a trap it fell on the ground lunged on it rolled over flipped it over and gave it to Horford for an assist with you know for a wide open bucket with twenty four seconds left so uh, you have those guys but it's all they're almost in the same position a little bit because they don't have Kyrie they don't have Gordon Hayward they kind of only have this. Well, they have a couple, but you know, Horford is like their main veteran anchor. That's Redick for the Sixers, and then you have all these young, talented guys who are sort of firing on all cylinders and, and rising to the occasion. And the Celtics are kind of doing the exact same thing. We just think of them a little bit differently because they have a uh, a more established uh, coach, sort of in the eyes of well, just in, in win total. Let's be honest, um, and the fact that the team roster construction has more veterans on paper. Uh, you know, signed to the team, but they're kind of in the same spot. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Besides, there's a lot of vultures circling over that uh, Celtics uh, Bucks series because mm-hmm. if if the Bucks don't advance, there's no chance Prunty keeps the job as coach, and that's the one everybody wants. Because <laughs> yeah. um, you, I mean, honestly, don't you watch them and think, man, if you just put a system in, yep. <laughs> just just yeah, a system that made sense in, this would be such a dangerous team. But uh, there Which we are. 
to, to be fair to Joe Prunty, that's also what I thought when they had uh, Jason Kidd at the helm. So yes, exactly. I don't <laughs> I, honestly. I don't think Prunty's doing like if you can't throw a guy in mid season and make. I don't know. I don't know if he's the man or who could do it. You know, for a full season and what would be different. But throwing a guy in mid season like that, it's just you're not going to be able to make the kind of changes you want. You just you can't switch up. You you can't radically overhaul your defensive system mid season. It's just you need well, time. You need a camp. I think he. I think he gets a, maybe a vote of confidence for the league in terms of getting on somewhere else. If, if yeah, they well, I would lose, think so. Yes, yeah. because I mean the fact that he continued to get them to the playoffs this year after all that sort of turmoil, especially you know, kid was at least pu- publicly. You know, Giannis gave support for kid uh, after that firing, and um, that's hard to do when you have a a, a, fr- a franchise player yeah. who uh, likes the coach. So I think him being able to take that over is a good vote of confidence for him. Exactly. Well, Dane, thanks for doing this. We got to have you back on uh, as we go into summer. I don't know if you're going to be out at summer league again this year, but uh, we will. I, I, look, we'll discuss this off air. You know, I'm going to be up in your neck of the woods this summer for a little bit, and um, I hear there are places that serve beer there, so we will yes, have to figure yeah, something many, out. There's, there's a couple, couple secret ones, but yeah, I'll show them to you. Yeah, is, I, I assume they're like speakeasies where there's no sign and you have to knock, have, know the secret knock or something. But uh, we'll, yeah, we'll, I, know, I know, I know the knock. I know the knock. So we're set. All right. Thanks for doing this again. And by the way, uh, great work at NBC. Where can everybody find you on Twitter? Yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter at Dane Carbaugh, D-A-N-E-C-A-R-B as in boy, A-U-G-H. And that's it. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Again, you can find me, Kurt Heelan, on Twitter at Basketball Talk. And you will be back next week with more playoff breakdowns and a lot more around the NBA as we uh, we head into the fun part of the year. Uh, and we uh, we will have, by the way, coming up in the next couple of weeks, uh, once the post-lottery, we're going to have a, a, a mock draft with Rob, Rob Doster from NBC Sports as well. So some fun stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.